you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the August 29th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, Chief Science Officer. I was off for a couple of weeks, and then last week our intern did a great podcast on cooking and how teaching cooking can be beneficial for people with autism in so many ways. Mia did a great job this summer, and we're definitely going to miss her. Now, this week, I want to go back to my favorite topic, gene-environment interactions. But before I do so, I wanted to tell you there's a few really great genetic studies published recently, and they're really interesting to know What kind of genes leads to what kind of people? And I want to synthesize them for you, but I'm not going to do it by myself. I'm going to do it with a special guest who knows more about genetics in his thumb than I do in my entire body. It's going to be a good one. Stay tuned. In the meantime, first, I want to start out with a finding from a study you may have heard about. The topic has been of interest to so many people. This one isn't about gene-environment interactions. It's about biomarkers. Now, when we look at the effectiveness of an intervention for the core symptoms of autism, how do science measure it? What instruments? This could be a reason why some treatments don't always work. Well, first, it's now naive to think that the same intervention is appropriate for every person across the spectrum. And also because clinicians don't have an objective way to understand if it works or not. What are some sort of biological symptom? People with cancer have tumor progression. People with diabetes have blood glucose levels. Now, the clinician instruments can be susceptible to bias, or they take a long time to administer, but not all of them, of course, but it's been a challenge. The study I'm going to talk about may be a first step in leading to not just biomarkers for diagnosis, but biomarkers for intervention efficacy. Investigators in something called the ABCCT, or Autism Biomarkers Consortium for Clinical Trials, looked at something called EEG as a biomarker. EEG is a marker of brain activity. But there's so much data to be gathered from an EEG session. I mean, think about it. The probes are all over the brain. The signals are large. Sometimes they're small. Sometimes they're transient. There's also lots of different stimuli given to get those brain signals. So which one is best related to an autism diagnosis and which one is most stable over time, which may indicate that any changes due to an intervention may be reflected in this EEG marker. So they tested four of them. First, they looked at markers of brain activity during face processing. Face processing is a fundamental social ability that's affected in ASD, and it's linked to early communicative symptoms. Looking at different faces and expression triggers a telltale N170 response. That N170 stands for a specific wavelength that's seen when people look at faces. That's cool, right? The latency to N170 to faces is delayed in individuals with ASD although there is some variability in that effect. Second, biological motion perception is critical to understanding ASD. It's indexed by the P1, N2, and P3 ERP components, and attenuated responses have been observed in ASD. This is literally 
looking at biological motion either through people or most likely points of light which represent someone moving or an object moving. Third, visual evoked potentials or VEPs provide information about the integrity of visual pathways and index biological mechanisms related to ASD. Now, children with ASD and sometimes associated genetic syndromes show a reduced amplitude of VEPs. To get these signals upset, a black and white checkerboards are presented to the person, and these black and white checkerboards get activity in the brain where visual stimulus is processed and really warmed up. Fourth and finally, resting state. This is just sitting in an EEG and staring at the wall or closing your eyes or just kind of calming down. There's no particular stimulus. It does, however, characterize atypicalities in intrinsic neural function in, in ASD. So this kind of means that in low and high frequency bands, they're increased, but they're decreased in mid-range frequency bands. Researchers at four different institutions across the U.S., including Yale, the University of Washington, UCLA, and Duke, measured these things in their labs in 280 children with autism with an average IQ and compared them to 119 typically developing children. So they were all nine years old, give and take. So there's a lot of complicated statistics, some of which I'm not entirely sure I understand, that have to do with analyzing the wavelength and the amplitude, meaning how long was the wave and how tall was the wave, and those waves reflect different neural connections that previously differed between groups. Now, this isn't surprising. These findings have been found previously. The resting state, the faces, and the visual evoked potential differed between autism kids and those who are not diagnosed. The researchers were able to capture more information from those who were not diagnosed compared to those with autism. And the best information from those with autism was seen in older kids with higher IQ. I want to point out that this may compromise the ability for these findings to be generalized to all kids. Many children with, have cognitive impairment, and so it is what it is. They did this study in this group of people, and I'm happy the authors said that explicitly. Sometimes studies don't. So three of those measures that I just mentioned met the first round of criteria. The resting state, the visual evoke potential, and the face processing was consistent across the different sites that were measuring it. Now, there was not enough usable data for the biological motion assay, so that one was dropped from consideration. They all did a good job at differentiating people with autism with normal IQ from those who are not diagnosed. However, the distributions overlapped. So if you looked at the range of scores in kids with autism and the range of scores in kids without autism, yeah, they're overall different, they're separate, but the tail ends of the curve touch each other. So if you need something to be the one thing that's different, none of these things will be. It's not by itself, any of these things, a singular biomarker. I think scientists will be thinking about multiple biomarkers when it comes to diagnosis. However, here's another point. With average IQ, the behavioral features of autism may not be entirely obvious 
So anything that differentiates them at all between those without autism could be helpful. Now, that's my opinion, that last statement. It's not something that anyone said in the paper, so please don't come for them. Come for me. The next step was to look at stability. So can any of these measures be used to look at change across time? Well, they all stayed relatively stable over time. So which one should be used? You have three that are valid. You have three that stayed stable over time. Well, all of them are viable candidates. So they may all be used to look at the effects of intervention. If they were stable, it means that they weren't susceptible to other changes that took place in a six-week time, like, I don't know, stress in the home or any sort of other intervening factor. So they're probably a marker of brain plasticity, which can change. And it's been shown that that change could be a reflection of intervention. More studies need to be done to see if they're stable for more than six weeks, but this is clearly a good start. Now on to the gene environmental studies. First, I'm gonna describe two studies using different methodologies, but they all come from our friends across the pond in Denmark and the UK. One has to do with a specific gene environment interaction. The other one uses a new approach in geospacing coding to look at different influences in a diagnosis by studying them in twins. So let's start out with the first, the specific relationship. Using one of my favorite types of studies that can only be done in Norland, which is Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and Finland, I call that together Norland, if you get conceived in one of these countries and live in one of these countries, every prescription you get filled, every diagnosis you have, every doctor's visit, every hospital visit is logged into a central registry or different registries, which are then linked to a main registry. It may sound very big brother, but it's really not. And a lot of our understanding of causes of disorders and diseases come from these registry-based approaches. Also, this also happens in the United States if you belong to the Kaiser Permanente Health System. Anyway, researchers can go in and get information about diagnoses and exposures all the way to pregnancy without a name or any identifying information. The researchers in Denmark wanted to look at gene-environment interactions when it came to early immune system challenges and a number of neurodevelopmental outcomes. They included autism, ADHD, schizophrenia, depression, and bipolar disorder. They looked at the registry to look at early childhood infection, which is different than infection during pregnancy. So infection of the mother during pregnancy with everything from flu to urinary tract infections has been linked to autism in the offspring in previous studies. Now this one looked at early childhood infections, so age five and below in autism groups. They also had collected biosamples on some of these people and they calculated what is known as a polygenic risk score. This is a marker of common variation, not rare variation. A higher score on the polygenic risk score means more, mutation, more mutations, which means a higher risk depending on the genes of interest for that disorder. So there's a polygenic risk score for autism. There's a polygenic risk score for ADHD. There's a polygenic risk for, for bipolar disorder. They also adjusted or got rid of some of the confounding factors that are usually associated with ASD independently or early infection. 
This included gender of the child, a parental mental illness, which isn't even always available in studies to begin with, but was in the registry study, the calendar period in which they were born, and the number of infections a sibling without ASD had in that family. All of these things might influence autism outcome or be indicative of something other than the infection in the child itself. The results, even taking into account the gene scores, the parental mental illness, urbanicity, and sibling infections, exposure to childhood infections increased the risk of ASD. It also increased the risk of ADHD, schizophrenia, and depression. Now, the last is surprising because I've never heard of that relationship before, but I also haven't been looking. The more infections, the higher the risk. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The polygenic risk score, or the genetic variant, was associated with increased odds of childhood infections among individuals with depression, but not autism. So, in fact, they acted somewhat independently. And the presence of a sibling infection was also associated with ADHD and schizophrenia and bipolar, but not autism. So from what we know, infection trumps common variation for autism risk, at least in Denmark, and at least for early childhood infections. But this study probably needs to be replicated to show that. This is a way to look at gene-environment interactions that U.S. researchers should pay attention to. Gene-environment interaction studies can be done. Now, another study released by the same group in Denmark looked at different subtypes, that is, doing a genetic analysis on groups of kids who either experienced a gestational infection, again, this is back to gestational versus early, meaning mom got the infection, or those who did not experience an infection during pregnancy. Genetic predisposition, again, the polygenic risk score, increased the risk of autism independently from the prenatal infection. Well, we knew that already. We know that polygenic risk scores do it, and we also know that infection does it, but does it do it together? But the association between the genetic scores in the two different groups, those with or without infection, and this was just in autism, were different, meaning the two groups have different etiologies. One might be genetic and one might be genetic environmental. Genetic factors associated with autism could also include genes that modify the immune system in general. This is called pleiotropy. Genes of interest can have multiple roles on ASD diagnosis and immune development. Along with the pleiotropic hypothesis and yet another model given by a completely different set of research studies, genes work on the immune system, which then shape the brain, and if it's disrupted in any way, there could be an autism diagnosis. It could be that a genetic risk for autism is there, but in some cases, it's not sufficient for a full autism diagnosis, that things like maternal infection then leads to an autism diagnosis. There were a few genes that popped up as being the most critical, but that's too much. My head is smitting. I'm thrilled that these questions are being asked in novel ways. And again, this all this immune system brouhaha means wash your hands if you're pregnant. Stay away from sick people if you are pregnant. Now, how else can studies be done besides looking at gene scores and exposures? Well, twins. Remember, twins were used to establish the early estimates of genetic versus environmental influences in a, in a diagnosis, 
versus, not with. It works like this. Identical twins share 100% of their DNA and pretty much 100% of their environmental exposure if they share a placenta. But fraternal twins show 50% of their genes, they're like brother and sister, and maybe a little less than 100% of pregnancy exposures because there's two placentas usually. Remember, this is usually the way that genes versus the environment, not genes plus the environment, were looked at. So the researchers took two different twin studies, one in Sweden and one in the UK, and calculated for each group the genetic or non-shared environmental factor in autism traits. Again, these are non-shared environmental factors. This study collected autism traits, not just an autism diagnosis. So they looked at either genetic influence of a diagnosis or environmental influences of a diagnosis in twins, either identical and fraternal, across UK and Sweden, and they found some variation. Some areas of Sweden and the UK showed more of a higher genetic risk load, and other areas showed less genetics and more environmental risk load. And this was across the UK and similarly across Sweden. I could tell you what the patterns were, but if you're from Sweden and know, then email me and I'll send you the article. Otherwise, nobody will know. Overall, cities and urban areas had less genetic risk and rural areas had more environmental influence. And that was overall, that wasn't a rule. Like the area around London was high on environmental influence and so was the area around Stockholm. On average, again, this is an interesting approach to study gene by environment interactions, and I'll explain why, but not a specific gene study with a specific environmental factor. So some of the things that they were thinking about in terms of a gene environment interaction was that if there was geographical differences in autistic traits, then an environmental factor may vary by location. That can be things like stress or air pollution in the cities. For areas of increased genetic influence, it means that the environment may draw out genetic influences. The authors also suggest that people may choose to live in different areas based on their genetics, and then that may influence the clustering. This may not be happening, but it's an explanation. Finally, they also suggested that there could be geographically patterned genetic differences interacting with environmental risk factors for autistic traits. So what's important about both of these studies? Well, it's not what they found, except for please, again, keep washing your hands. But it's another study looking at infection and gestation or early childhood resulting in an increased probability of an autism diagnosis. And also, it's a new method to understand gene environment interactions when you code it across different places in an entire country where you can see variability of genes and environment. So these are new approaches. Thanks for listening this week, and I hope you enjoy the last week of your summer, and I will talk to you the Monday after Labor Day. If I could read your mind, love, what a tale your thoughts could tell. Just like a paperback novel, the kind the drugstore sells.